0: Can everybody hear me all right this morning? Good. We're having some microphone issues with me a little bit earlier, so if you can't hear me, let me know. My name is Braden Rodriguez. I'm our student 1825 pastor, uh, and it is an honor to to be before you this morning. Uh, I'm super blessed to to call this place uh, home, and uh, man, I really just uh, enjoyed that, Uh, that worship, uh, that song, obviously a little bit older song. I think I sang when I was in youth group uh, many, many, many years ago. But um, when I call, he answers. Says, that's a promise, actually. He says, when you call upon me, I'll answer you. When you seek my face, you will find me. If you knock on the door, I'm going to open it. And I just love the promise of Scripture. And I love uh, this morning. I came in. I'm usually… I don't know, somber, I guess you would say, and uh, came in this morning and, and just had 30 minutes of some extra time, and I, I, I kind of locked my way uh, in the back of the church and kind of locked myself back there and was just in a very joyous mood this morning, uh, getting to worship the Lord, and I hope hopefully, I don't know how you came in here today, hopefully you can leave in the same joy in which God promises and God gives, it says call, seek, knock, and you'll find he'll answer and he'll open the door. So this morning, continuing on in our series, uh, ask God to just speak to you today. Ask God to fill you with the joy of his salvation. That's a, a prayer of King David. He says, God, return unto me the joy of your salvation. Not our salvation, but his. This morning we're continuing on in our series, uh, it's called Under the Sun. We've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, what we've seen, uh, one, is, is doom and gloom from Solomon the writer. He's, he's going through his existential crisis and he's writing down uh, this for the rest of antiquity and history to read, uh, but not only do we see him walking through it, he does uh, lay out many problems, but he gives a solution. The problem that he finds and that we've been looking at is really... Where we get the, the name of the series is that under the sun is a common phrase that he uses. Under this sun, in this breath of life, I have found everything to be vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, breath, vapor, other ways to translate that uh, Greek, uh, Hebrew term. But he's saying, everything that I've tried, which is sex, money, food, uh, a- accumulation, wealth, property, he says, I even tried my wisdom, and it is all been meaningless it's all been vanity it's all been breath or vapor here now and gone in a moment We've been walking through this series and we've been looking at that and we've been looking at really what's probably the second most depressing book behind probably like Lamentations, right? Uh, and we've been walking through this and we've been trudging through and yet every week I've, I've been blessed to, to get to see many different uh, men from our church and our congregation preach uh, and they have done an amazing job pointing to the hope of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I believe it's in verse 13. He says, these are all of the problems, but here is the solution. It Ends in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, right, after he goes through his existential crisis. He says, fear God, obey his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. That if you have relationship with God, things can change. God can offer us a meaningful life in a meaningless world. He can offer us a full life in an empty world. That God can do immeasurably more than we ask or think when we're in him in ourselves, we try to self-satisfy. Blaise Pascal, early Christian thinker, talks about uh, there's this vacuum in our heart and it's God-shaped. It's a big old God-shaped hole and the only thing to fill it is God through Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what this series has been about, that God can come and fill the emptiness and And satisfy every unsatisfied part of us that we've tried to fulfill in ourselves. I quoted Jeremiah last week, Jeremiah's prophet of the Old Testament. He says, on behalf of God, people of Israel, you have committed two evils. You've forsaken the fountain of living water, being God himself, and you've tried to hew out your own wells and cisterns and buckets and tried to fill it, but they have cracks and they hold no water. That is your second evil. So the first is you've turned away from God, the one who could fill you with every drop of water that. You need, and yet you 've replaced him for your own empty buckets that can't even hold water. and that 's really the point of this series is how do we get back from filling our own buckets that hold no water to the fountain of living water? We'll tell you a little bit about myself this morning. Uh, you probably like, why does Braden have the game Monopoly right here? This is my favorite board game, okay? I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. This is my favorite board game, Monopoly, and I know what you're thinking. Uh, that game is too long and too boring. All right, before, you know, I know many of you are thinking that. Before uh, we go any further, let me tell you, if you think this game is long and boring, you're playing it wrong. I'm sorry. You should read the rule books. Uh, I've played Monopoly with so many different people and everybody's got their own house rules. Just read the rule book. It says that every time someone lands on a new space, it's got to be sold either for full price or at auction starting at $10. The board goes up real quick like, if you play correctly. Anyway, so how about you play right and then come back and talk to me uh, in a few weeks, okay? So uh, I'm going out of town this week, so none of you can hate me when I come back. Um, but anyway, play the game and let me, let me know how you like it then. But all of that to say, I love this game an amazing game. It's a fun game. I love the colors of the game. I love that you can get it in like 18 different thousand versions. I saw Kale a couple of weeks ago and I was like, dude, you know, they have Lord of the Rings Monopoly. And he was like, what? You know, so uh, it's quite expensive. So if somebody's feeling buying that for Kale, you could do that. Uh, a little too dense for my pocketbook. Uh, but anyway, so, but I love everything about the game. I love the premise of the game. The and, and actually the premise of the game is pretty simple. You get a loan from the bank. Who doesn't love that, right? And It's not real life, so you don't have to pay it back. So you get a loan from the bank, and the bank gives you money, and you go invest it. You go buy up all of this property, and the goal of the game is to buy up and accumulate as much stuff on the board as possible so that when other people land on that space, they owe you more fake money. Uh, And I I really do uh, love the strategy of the game, the investment of the game, and I know what you're thinking, Braden, you're a nerd, absolutely. However, this is serious. Raise your hand if you've ever played the game of Monopoly. Wonderful. All right, you can put your hands down. Raise your hand if you've never played the game of Monopoly. All right, solid. Hey, uh, also keep your your hand raised if you've never played Monopoly and you have a high schooler, middle schooler, elementary schooler that that lives in your home. Anybody? I saw one hand. What happened? What happened to that hand? There you go. Hey, Um, I was like, you're in high school. I know you. Um, (laughs) I was like, you live in that house. Um, if I gave you this game, would you play it? Sure. All right. That's good enough for me. Uh, Mariah, could you give Mia that game over there? Thank you so much. Raise your hand, Mia. That's awesome. Here, here's one thing that we value at our church. You can clap for that, I guess, I suppose. Um, <laughs> One of the things we value at our church is time uh, with our families and and family discipleship. And so uh, uh, Diego, Maya, Mateo, you guys, I hope you enjoy uh, playing Monopoly. It is my favorite game, so hopefully it can be yours too. And then you'd come to youth group and I just smoke you in Monopoly. But (laughs) anyway, I digress there. You know what else I love about the game? Just kind of draw and put a nice big bow on it. What I love about this game is this. It's at the end of the day, like I said, it's not real. No matter how much money you make or how much money you lose, if you go bankrupt, it's all over. Everyone actually ends the game the same way. And you're like, I've played Monopoly. What do you mean? Everyone's going to give their money back to the bank. It's going to go in the box. You're going to seal it up and you're going to put it back on your shelf. Everyone ends the same way. It's not real. And the reason I show you this game and the reason why we're, we're going here is that I think the text that we come to today has got some things to say about what we are investing in. A lot of times, I think what a a lot of us do is invest in things that are monopoly money and monopoly property. We put all this time and all this energy and all this effort into it, and then we're gonna put it back in the box and we're gonna shelf it, and it's gonna collect dust. And yet there are things that are actually important and investment worthy in our lives that we will neglect. Or we put the wrong emphasis on. This morning, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. This is the main point today. Invest in God's kingdom and not in your own monopoly. Invest in God's kingdom and not your own monopoly. Let's pray before we jump into Ecclesiastes. Father, we love you. We give you all the glory and honor for you are the only one worthy of it all. Father, today we ask that you would till up the soils of our hearts God, would you uh, remove anything that needs to be taken away? Father, would you let the seed of your word take deep root in our heart, and would it produce 30, 60, and 100-fold? Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? All for the sake of your Son, who's our Savior. Amen. We're going to be looking at a few different things here this morning when it talks when we talk about g- godly investment, the most of which are relationships, relationships that you have here on this side of eternity and the relationship you have with Jesus on this side of eternity. So we're going to start, if you have your Bible, you can flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to be jumping through 8, 9, and 10. So if you have your Bible, again, you can flip there. If you don't have a hard copy of the scriptures, it'll be on the screen this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 2, it says, I say... Keep the commands of the king. Because of God's oath to him, do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just Way. So where are we starting off here, right? This is very uh, pointed and contextual to where uh, Solomon is. Solomon is the king of Israel. And what he says is, follow the commands of the king because God has made an oath with him. So let's, let's just take that and let's just start there. There is relationships on this side of eternity that God has put in your life where there's going to be some authority exchanged. And there's going to be some things that you need to function with some people in your life where they have some invest, they have some authority, some, some sort of direction over your life. And the people of Israel, it was supposed to be King Solomon. Why? Because King Solomon was supposed to be following Yahweh, God, so nearly and so closely that whatever the king's command is should be beneficial for the people holistically. So this is supposed to be with the, uh, with, the, with the starting point that whoever has this authority who has been God-given into your life should be following God himself. Are we all, we're all on the same page right now, right? There are people that are supposed to be godly people who God has put into authority in your life. Let's take a moment and we're like, all right, well, who might that be, right? There are people who've been given authority into our lives, our federal, state, local governments, all of those things. Now, whether those are godly influencers or not, we'll, we'll get there, but th- those people have been given authority into our lives, right, if you're driving 55 and a 35 in a school zone, you're going to jail, okay, right? There's been authority given to the local, state, and federal government arenas to, to make sure that we're moving holistically in a, in a good direction. And whether you agree or disagree with the political things of the world is is neither here nor there. God has placed authority structures in our lives for married people, our spouses, not just husbands over wives, but wives also have authority in the husband's lives. Many of you have jobs. Your bosses have authority in your life. Kids, as much as you hate it, your parents have some sort of authority in your life. And here's what Solomon is advocating for. If you have a godly authority who has been placed in your life, follow them. That it shouldn't be some rigmarole or some rebellion every time you're asked to do something by this authority figure. It shouldn't be. Now, I want to put this disclaimer in because what I know is, is many of us have authority figures in our lives that aren't godly authority figures whether that be right all the way from the top to to government officials, our bosses, sometimes our spouses don't follow Jesus. Kids, sometimes your parents don't follow Jesus. I know that the reality of life is, is that we live in a broken and fallen and sinful world. And yet God has still put people in authority in our lives. What I am not advocating for when I talk about this authority And I want to to say this as clearly and as plainly as possible. What I am not advocating for is for anyone who has an authority figure in their life, whether they follow Jesus or not, that authority figure, if they are asking you to do something immoral, unethical, illegal, or that is inherently abusive to you, I am not asking that you would stand for that. If there is something immoral, unethical, and illegal that they're asking you to do, ultimately where you should fall is back on God's law. Ultimately, where you should be is following God, in subjection to God. I think that would be what King Solomon is teaching. Because King Solomon is supposed to be following closely to Yahweh. King David was supposed to be following closely to Yahweh. Saul, King Saul, was supposed to be following close to God. So if they're asking you to do something immoral, unethical, or illegal that breaks God's law... I'm not asking that you would stand for that. And if someone is abusing you in your life, whether that be a parent to a child, child to parent, spousal, uh, 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 whether that is your boss, I'm not advocating that you stay and take that abuse by any stretch of the imagination. Because what happens is uh, Solomon will say, hey, don't stand in evil. It says it in that text. Well, what is evil? If the person is following God, and asking you to do something godly and you rebel against it, that's evil. But what I also think is evil is for someone to act in evilness towards you and you just sit and take it and go along with the evilness and the wickedness and the unrighteousness. Solomon will take a deep dive into another relationship. So, first, our relationship with authority, second, is our relation with our spouses. He goes on to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 9. He says, Enjoy life with the wife in whom you love all the days of your vain life that has been given under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. I think he takes a deep dive into this marriage relationship. Our teaching pastor of Marion, his name's Paul, came a few weeks ago, and he talked about what a godly marriage is. The ordination of God's uh, uh, marriage looks like this. One man, one woman, leaving their father and mother, clinging to one another, making a covenant that is holy between one another and before God. That is the, the basis of a Christian godly marriage. And so Solomon comes and he says, hey, enjoy the wife or the spouse, husbands, wives, wives, husbands, enjoy this relationship. I truly believe that on this side of eternity, that a marriage relationship between two Christians, two godly people who follow Jesus, should be the most beautiful and amazing relationship that this side of eternity has to offer. Why? Because it is two people clinging to one another, representing the gospel before the world. That it is not just two people, like just happenstance, just like fumbling through life. They're like, Jesus is cool. No, it is meant to draw people closer to God. I think this relationship, more than any other, shows how Jesus and, and Paul would say, the Apostle Paul would say that this reflects how Jesus loves his church. That the church is called the bride and he the groom. And there's all of these nuances about marriage and about the gospel that are so tied together. It's beautiful. Any 18, 25 year olds out there, anyone out there considering godly marriage, let me tell you this, it has been one of the greatest privileges that I've had on this side of eternity. It has been one of the greatest privileges of my life. And here's where I don't want you to lose me. I don't wanna sound like a grumpy old man. I feel like as I was prepping this sermon, like there's some things that I'm passionate about and feel strongly about, and this is one. So often, those of you who are considering marriage and are not married yet, or or have been married a very short time. Here's where I feel people lean. I remember proposing to my wife and people being like, the first year is the hardest. And then as I go on, the fifth year, just wait. The seventh year, just wait. And I have people who will come and who will complain about their spouse to me or tell me how they don't like their spouse or how they argue with their spouse. Those of you who consider marriage and a godly relationship, let me tell you, it doesn't have to be that way that God has meant so much for your marriage and God wants you to enjoy your marriage. I think where he talks about here in this passage, he says he says enjoy It's not that the spouse is the prize. It is the enjoyment that comes from the man and the woman reflecting this gospel relationship that brings the enjoyment. It is not that my wife is the prize. It is the enjoyment that we have together as two Christian believers following God and what comes out of that is the prize. It is not the other person. Though I love my wife and she is a prize to me. Ultimately, she should not be the final thing. It doesn't have to be the hardest. And yet, at the same time, I don't want to be naive because there are hard things that you will walk through in your marriages. And many of you are walking through them right now. My wife and I back um, earlier this year, late last year, we were walking through a very hard and uncomfortable season, to be honest. I asked her if I could share this story last night we're walking through a very hard and uncomfortable season, um, where I didn't know if I wanted to continue to have kids. I have two toddlers right now, they're twin girls and they are bananas. Uh-huh. and I love my kids, but in my, in my heart and my soul, I didn't necessarily know if I wanted to take that next step and, and, and maybe having two more kids, uh, you know, twins again, or just getting pregnant again. And, um, also, there's a lot of things that go along with that. Uh, and we, you know, we could talk about that one day. But my wife was on the opposite side of the spectrum. She would have been ready to have like 18 more kids uh, right after um, our, 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 the birth of our girls. And, and that was hard. And that was uncomfortable. There was many tears shed. And there was many awkward nights where the conversation would start and not resolve, and that was hard. Ultimately, the Lord did a lot of work in me. He softened my heart, and and I came to to the conclusion, man, I, I, I do think I want more kids. I do think I want to move in this direction, but that was a long season for me, and my wife bared with me, and again, it was hard, but it doesn't have to be the worst. It doesn't have to be the worst thing on this side of eternity, It's it's amazing conversations that we ended up having about so much more than just should we have a third kid. My wife and I are pregnant. We are pregnant with our son, uh, or well, they say it's supposed to be a boy, but yes, yeah, so. That God is faithful, and even in spite of myself, he knew what he was doing, he is sovereign. Now, as we just gave a disclaimer for the first relationship with authority, I wanna give a disclaimer here. I know many of you are, are maybe married to, to spouses that don't follow Jesus, that it hasn't been the greatest earthly pleasure that you've had on this side of eternity, that it has been more hard than it has been delightful. There have been things in your marriages, I know because I've heard, that have been very difficult. And again, I wanna say, What this is supposed to be is a reflection of the gospel. And maybe some of you are sitting in some sort of abuse. Again, just as we talked about in authority, I am not advocating that you sit and continue there. Now, I think God can, can do a work of healing and reconciliation and can change hearts. I absolutely believe that. That's actually like what he came to do. It says there was this ministry of reconciliation. Mariah just talked about, you can reach out a broken hand and it be healed. So God can do that, but I'm not advocating that you sit and take the abuse as God begins to work that out. I'm not sitting here and standing here and saying that you should take the affairs of your spouse flippantly that those are real and hard things, and Scripture has a lot to say about that. And so, this is meant, right, for two believers who are following Jesus closely. And many of you need a healing work that God has to offer. So seek, seek wise counsel from from family members who follow Jesus. Seek wise counsel of pastors, of life group leaders. Walk through that. I've seen God do amazing things in marriages. We continue on. We go on to this next relationship. This next relationship we have, I think, is that of the people of God. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, you know, enjoy your spouse. And then he goes into chap, uh, in verse 10 and he says, everything that you, your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And I think he's talking uh, a little bit about work. I think he's saying like, yes, put your, your hand to this, this work that is on this side of eternity, all this side of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But I also think in the context of relationships, what that looks like to put your hand mightily to a work is something like this. I think that besides Christian marriages, I think the greatest earthly relationship is that between the brothers and sisters in Christ, and it requires work, mighty work, that our hand, when it is put to unity and community the way that God has intended, it is hard, and it is work, and it is so much more than we could think or that it has ever been taught. That I believe, if you listen to our Drivecast just a couple of weeks ago, that our, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the church should, besides our spouse, be the highest form of community and relationship that we have on this side of eternity. So anyone who's not married, you have a work to be done. All of us who are married, who are Christians, we have a work to be done, and that is the relationship with one another. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, one of my favorite uh, passages, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 7 through 12, it says, one man, that's, that's not good, one man will fail, how can he be lifted up again? But he says, Two. Oh, that's good, right? When he falls, he can be picked up again, when he's cold, he can be warmed, and then he goes on to say, three amazing That is a three-folded cord that is not easily severed. That what is advocated, especially amongst the church, is a radical type of unity that breaks all of our comprehension. Psalm 133 verse 1, the the psalmist will say, oh, how good it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Then you flip to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10, the command form comes in. He says, stir one another up in love and to good works. He says, do not neglect meeting with one another as is the habit of some. So what is being commanded of us, even in the New Testament, is a radical kind of love and unity and work with one another. And then he'll go back to Acts chapter, or we'll go back to Acts chapter 2. What was the earliest believers devoting themselves to? The apostles' teaching, which is the scripture, prayer, that's a good one, fellowship, breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. One of the key pillars of the earliest church was fellowship and unity amongst one another. And it says they devoted themselves to it. It is a part of our devotional life to gather together, big and small, and to love one another. That is a call of ours. It is a part of our devotional life. That's why I think it's so hard. It is a spiritual discipline for us to come together, get over our biases and our preferences, and to say, I am locked in with one person here at this church and all of the people here at this church. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has covered all of us. No matter where we came from, Jesus has come and he has made a way for adoption so that we might now have a family. The Apostle Paul will say that all of us are one body. And that we all have different roles and functions. I truly believe that if one of you were gone from this gathering this morning, we would be worse off. Because you have a God-made image and you have been, been so gifted by God. And if you were not here, we would not function to the fullness. For those who are missing this morning, we are worse off without them. And that is the stance that we should take. That our brothers and sisters are the greatest relationship on this side of eternity. Proverbs chapter 6, it says this: it says, six things God hates. And you're like, whoa, I didn't know God hated anything. He does. It says, six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And he says the six things, and they're pretty serious, but the seventh is interesting. Uh, the writer, Solomon, is trying to put focus on number seven. He's saying, hey, the seventh, that is an abomination to the Lord that he dislikes and disdains are those who sow seeds of discord between the brothers. What does that mean? Those who are striving in disunity and not unity amongst the church. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, well, Braden, they didn't say hey to me when I came in. Or maybe they weren't as welcoming as they should have been. And I'm not saying that's right, but that excuse is no longer valid. Why? Because what Jesus says is love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Well, they didn't talk to me. Well, if you love yourself that much, did you go say, hey? Did you reach out? Jesus would go on to talk about this. We call it the golden rule. Do unto others as what? As you want it to be done unto you. You want to have church community, you want to have church relationship, all of, the, all of the, the stuff is ripped away. All of the excuses are ripped away. Jesus says, love more. Honor, Paul would say, outdo one another in showing honor, that we work hard for it. And it says, God detests when we sow disunity among one another. So we have our relationship with authority, relationship with our spouses, relationship with one another. Putting godly investment into your relationships is kingdom investment. Putting godly investment into your relationships is kingdom investment, 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse two. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. We share this good news in which Jesus has done in our lives and we invest into one another and to the outside world, this good news. The last investment that we'll talk about as far as relationally is this, is our relationship with Jesus. Putting godly investment into your relationship with Jesus is essential. Can't just all be, you know, authority, spouses, this. There is a foundation in which all of this comes from, and it is our relationship with Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 14 through 15. There was a little city with a few men in it. A great king came against it and besieged it, building up great siege works against it. But there was found a poor and wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, and yet no one remembered the poor. Man, here's the challenge to the investment. What should we then be investing in? Well, Solomon will will tell us a story. He says, well, there was this rich and powerful king, presumably who has put a lot of time and investment in what? His kingdom, his prestige, his money. He's powerful, rich king. And then on the opposite side, there was this poor, wise man. The end of the story says this poor, wise man who has investment in his wisdom is forgotten. Ultimately, the king who is nameless here is also forgotten. That his plan fails. So what is godly investment? Is it to put it all in money? I think many of us know the answer. No. Why? Because you can't own everything. Someone more powerful will come along and they'll thwart your plan just like this passage right here. The king comes against it. This wise man who's poor actually thwarts the plan of this king. You can't own everything. Everything, first Timothy says it this way, for the love of money is the root of all kinds is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that many have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So what should we be doing? A better investment is your relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying investing in your money and your and your possessions is, is a wrong thing, but too much investment in the wrong thing makes it a bad thing. What Jesus advocates for and what the New Testament advocates for and the Old Testament advocates for is your relationship with God. Well, what, well all right, Well, so I'm not going to put all my money in all of this. I'm not going to invest just in my power and my prestige and this. I'll just be a poor, wise man. I'll just have a ton of knowledge. I'll know stuff. I think you see ultimately that even in wisdom it fails. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 he said, I tried to put my mind to figure it out, and yet still, God, I could not. Why? Because you can't know everything. So what's more important, knowing everything or knowing the one who made it all? Paul would talk about it in Corinthians. He says in Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. What does he say about knowledge? Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Knowledge can make us proud. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Your relationship with God is worth the investment, and actually, it's essential. We'll continue on. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, right? Wisdom's still good. Don't just throw wisdom out the door. But one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. What is worth your investment when we're talking about a relationship with Jesus is your holiness. Your holiness is worth the investment. I read this quote. It it, kind of explains this dead flies perfumers statement. He says, even a single sinner can undo the effects of wisdom. So a small mistake can offset the fragrance of wisdom and honor. Clearly, it is easier to ruin something than it is to develop something. Anybody know that? It's easier to ruin something than it is to build something up. Folly seems to enjoy an advantage over wisdom, for an abundance of wisdom can be canceled out just by a little bit folly. What is he saying? He's saying if you invest in your sin, there is no amount of good investments that you can do to outweigh the sin because a little bit of sin is going to outweigh the good. All right, so I'm going to invest in my sin. You know what? I'll just go out to the bar on Saturday night. I'll drink a little bit. You know what? I'll just go to church on Sunday. It cancels out. It's good. Actually, it doesn't. So it says just a little bit of that sin, it will outweigh that little bit of holiness. And actually, It'll make it stink. There is no amount of good investments and good things you can do to outweigh the sin in which so easily entangles because just a little ruins the whole thing. It's actually a New Testament thought and belief. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for the wages of that sin, Paul would say, is death. There is no amount of good you can do to cover the sin, but there is one who is good, who covers all sin. His name is and his name's Jesus. we're talking about our investment into our relationship with Jesus being essential. Here's the main thing. You are not holy without the Holy One living in you. That he takes the scales of good and bad and he just wipes them away. That there is no more amount of good or bad that you can do to separate you from the love of God when you're in relationship with him and you know him deeply that God covers all sin. I was reading in Revelation a few few weeks ago, and I love this passage, it says, those who go with their garments and wash them in the blood of the lamb, their garments become white. So taking this dirty, brown, filthy robe that's supposed to be white and dipping it in something red is what? should come out as red, right? John would say no, it comes out crystal clean, white. You are made pure in Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus and you've done all of this good stuff to try to outweigh all of the bad stuff, let me tell you, he's the only one who can fix it. Bring your garments to the blood of the lamb. Take a dip into it and see how you come out. It says, wash me, God. Purge me with his, make me whiter than snow. The last is this. Ecclesiastes ten twenty. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in the bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. The last investment we'll talk about is invest in the things you say. This is also part of your relationship with Jesus. Invest in the things you say. What is being brought up here is that your thoughts turn often to words, and your words often will be carried out. By who? Either someone else, Or yourself. That if your thoughts become words and you go tell the the wrong person in gossip and in slander, oftentimes you know what happens. You say something to someone, and that someone goes and tells someone else, and it all it finally gets to the person. That your thoughts became words that became Action And oftentimes that's how it works for us, right? Our thoughts, right? If, we, if we're angry with our boss, if we're angry with this person and we're all of these things frustrated, oftentimes our thoughts become words and our words become action towards those people. Well, you know what? If they say it one more time, you know what? If they do one more thing and you begin to speak it all out loud, and then what? You begin to function towards that person in that way. James, Jesus' half-brother Goes on to talk about this in the New Testament. He says, there's, a, there's this little rudder that steers this big ship. He says, there's also a little rudder that steers our lives. And he says, it's our tongue. He says, what we say matters because it steers the direction in which we're going. He says, it's a little spark that lights a whole forest ablaze. So is our tongue. So it's worth our investment. So what are we doing? Let's, let's think about everything we just talked about our investment with authority, our spouses, uh, our church, with Jesus. Let's think about this last point. What we say matters, so what do we say? Are we putting investment in love and honor and building up one another? Or do we do what James says, and we praise God in one moment, but then we curse people who are made in his image in the next? It's a challenge. I want you to bow your heads. Just think and pray with me for a moment before we worship again. As I prepared this message, uh, what I didn't want is for this to only sound like behavior modification. And it, was, it, was, it genuinely weighed heavy on my mind this week. Guys, as I've already said, there is no amount of good deeds to outweigh the bad. There's no amount of behavior modifications that we can do to cover up for anything else. And behavior modification is not a true gospel life. A true gospel life is loving Jesus, following Jesus, and putting all of your chips in that basket. He washes us whiter than snow. Maybe you're here today and you've never started a relationship with Jesus. You don't even know what that takes. My prayer for you, my hope for you is that today that you would know him, that you would talk to someone here today before you leave and ask, hey, how do I know him? How do I come with my garments and dip them in the blood of the lamb? You can ask myself, you can ask any of our team members in our Connection shirts, any of our staff, our Next Steps team, who's ready and willing. This is why they're here, they want to talk to you. They want to help you move into that. Would you talk with someone before you leave today? I know it is scary to bear a weight of something out to someone else. That's the first step for you to find healing. Bear it out loud. And then say, now what does it take for Jesus to cover that? Maybe you have been walking with Jesus for quite some time and something I said, you aren't living in. I don't live out all of these things perfectly. It's challenging. Would you ask Jesus today to show you, would you ask the Holy Spirit to show you what it is in your life that needs to change? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We give you all glory and honor for you're the only one worthy. God, today I pray that for those who don't know you would know you. And Father, they would come with their garments and they would dip them in the blood of the Lamb so that they may be made clean. And Father, for the rest of us, would we hear the challenge from your Spirit to change and to do what you've asked us to do, to stop building in our own monopoly build in your kingdom. Father, we love you. We give you all glory and honor for again you are the only one worthy of it all. In Jesus' name we pray.